Stephanie Budin completed her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, is an historian whose research focuses on gender, religion, sexuality, and iconography in ancient Greece and the Near East. She has co-edited two volumes and has published a number of books, including Women in Antiquity, uh, that is Real Women Across the Ancient World, The Origin of Aphrodite, and most recently, Free Women, Patriarchal Authority, and the Accusation of Prostitution. She is also the editor of Near Eastern Archaeology Journal and will be publishing her next book, Gender and the Ancient Near East through Rulage in the, actually by the time this is published, uh, it will be out. So she is a prolific author and Stephanie's with us today to discuss Aphrodite's origins and connections to Cyprus. Stephanie, welcome to the History of Cyprus podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and and to you and to the listeners, I, I just wanted to uh, apologize. As you can probably tell, this is not my regular voice, and uh, I did wake up under the weather this morning. But we don't, we can't leave Aphrodite waiting. It's been such a long time. So many episodes have gone by, and we haven't done Aphrodite justice. So I'm I'm really excited for today's episode. Me too. So Stephanie, I, I wanted to begin by asking who Aphrodite was in the in the Greek pantheon, and it, it might be uh, better to to kind of contextualize this with um, with Aphrodite in in popular imagination. Because when we think of Aphrodite, at least when I thought of Aphrodite in in my youth, you know, reading Greek mythology, I thought you know this golden haired goddess coming out of the sea on a seashell, Botticelli's painting, you know, that sort of stuff. So how, how do we imagine Aphrodite? In modern pop culture, we imagine her the exact same way that you imagine her. Uh, we picture Aphrodite on a seashell by Botticelli. Uh, you can see that in the museums. You can see that on Monty Python. I think that is the go-to image most people have of Aphrodite. Uh, we tend to uh, tame her a little bit. We, we kind of understand she's a goddess of sex, but we like to say she's a goddess of love and beauty. And we give a certain amount of short shrift to the sexuality. So I would say that love and beauty, naked, potentially blonde, not necessarily, but frequently blonde Aphrodite. She is known as golden Aphrodite. And we tend to stick that into her hair if you want to think of it that way. So in modern pop culture, that is pretty much the extent of her areas of influence and her range of influence. Now, in the ancient world, it was far more extensive than that. But in modern times, we tend to give very small categories to the Greek deities in general. It is always name, god or goddess of x and x tends to be rather small for the ancient greeks uh the gods always had more extensive powers than we're willing to understand or capable of understanding in modern times you know i think of um growing up i used to watch and and i'm really kind of dating myself here uh if anyone remembers in the early 90s there was uh, a tv show with um Kevin Sorbo called Hercules the legendary oh, journey. Oh yes. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know, I remember their portrayal of Aphrodite as vapid and let's just say very ditzy portrayed that way. That that seems like they're being really unfair to the way um, Aphrodite was really venerated in antiquity. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. She is in some ways presented as the quintessentially female feminine goddess. And then we load onto her all possible negative stereotypes of femininity in our modern culture. So she's so girly and all she cares about is how she looks and is she going to get a date? Um, and that is so not the ancient Aphrodite. If anything, uh, the ancient Greeks were kind of afraid of Aphrodite because she is the goddess who would grab you by the short hairs and she could force you and motivate you in ways that were not always comfortable. When you look at the beginning of the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, they point out that she even manipulates Zeus. So she could be problematic because she was so powerful. And we don't like to admit that we are led around by our genitals. So we turn it around on her and make her seem like a ditz as opposed to, yeah, I'm thinking with my ovaries again, something like that. Right. 
Uh, now, why why is Aphrodite so intimately associated with Cyprus? And, and I suppose I'm asking, what are, what are the earliest textual evidence that we have of Aphrodite's presence in mythology on Cyprus? There are different ways of answering that question. Uh, there is the way that the Greeks probably would have understood it, and then there's the way that modern scholarship understands it. So let me start with the ancient Greeks. Uh, so we can do this chronologically. Hooray! She entered the Greek pantheon late. Let's start there. So if we go back into the Bronze Age, uh, there is a form of writing that the Mycenaean Greeks used known as Linear B. Uh, it was derived from a form of writing that the Minoans used called Linear A. So A, B, it's very logical there. So the Mycenaeans wrote in Linear B and they wrote in clay. And when the palace burnt down, well, all of their clay tablets got preserved. Hooray except for the whole burning part. We got a lot of the records, at least for the last year or so of the life of a palace. So places like the Palace of uh, Nestor at Pilos, for example. So we have lists of things like how many sheep someone has and you know who's making wheels for the chariots this year. But we also have lists of uh, rituals and things that were given to the deities. So we have lists of names of what deities were being worshipped in Bronze Age Greece. So we have Zeus, and we have DNA, and we have uh, Demeter, and we have Poseidon, and Poseidon seems to have a girlfriend named Potnia, and so on and so forth. So we see most of the names, to one extent or another, in this Mycenaean corpus. One name that does not come up at all is Aphrodite zero evidence that Aphrodite was present in Bronze Age Greece. So she came into the Greek pantheon late. She is already there by the 8th century. She shows up in the works of Homer and Hesiod. Her name is already in an inscription at Pithecusae to the west of Italy. And she is already showing up there as a goddess of sex because it's a drinking cup and it says, uh, basically, whoever drinks for me soon will uh, golden crown Aphrodite sees him. So basically, you drink and then you get horny. So she's already there in her standard present form. So she's there by 8th century. So she shows up at what we call the Dark Age. So when she does show up, there are two completely different narratives as to how she fits into the divine family. So if you follow Homer, Aphrodite is the daughter of Zeus, who was a sky god, and the goddess Dione. And that's how you see her in the Iliad, especially in book five of the Iliad, where she's kind of hanging out with both of her parents after trying to go into battle and getting a nail broken. And so that's one version of her parentage and where she fits into the family. Now, there's another version, and we see that in Hesiod. Now, in Hesiod, two of the primordial deities were Ge, Earth, and her son, Uranos, who is the sky. And then very Freudian here, she marries her son and they have continuous sex and he won't stop having sex with her long enough for her to give birth. So you can imagine she's getting really grouchy. And she finally tells one of her children, or she asks one of her children, who will castrate dad for me? And Kronos says, I'll do it, because he was very ambitious. So he castrates Oranos and throws Oranos's penis off into the sea and foam emerges around it and out of it emerges Aphrodite. So she is literally, if you will, the reincarnation of Oranos's penis. And according to Hesiod, she forms out of the blood and the foam. She rises up on the sea and then the gentle wa uh, waves and winds blow her to Cyprus. And that is where she first sets foot on land. So according to that narrative, that is why she's associated with Cyprus, because that's where she first lands when she is first born. Now, we don't get a birth narrative in Homer, but we do get from Homer that every time she needs to go home, what she would consider home for some reason. She thinks of home as Paphos, literally her temple at the site of what we would now call Old Paphos, where she had a really, really old temple dating back into the Bronze Age. So her presence there is older than anything we find in Greece. So for to summarize all of this, if you're following Homer, she's associated with Cyprus because that is where her main home is, specifically at Paphos, her temple at Paphos. If you're following Hesiod, she's associated with Cyprus because that's where she first made landfall upon being born. And they, uh, occasionally, there, 
Aphrodite is also referred to as Kypris. Yep, she can be known as Kypris or Kypria or even Kyprogenes, uh, born on Cyprus. So those are three of her epithets. Listeners might be surprised to hear that mm-hmm. the Greek Aphrodite didn't have, and I quote, much presence amongst the Iron Age Cypriots, and that the earliest inscriptions to mention Aphrodite by that name, they actually mm-hmm. only date to the 4th century BCE. It really becomes a matter of names and not confusing a deity with his or her name or any specific um, epithet or attributes. Uh just even on the Greek mainland and in the islands, you have a whole bunch of different city-states, polis in Greek, uh, that were so radically different from one another in culture, in self-understanding, and in the way they understood and worshipped their various deities. So you're going to have radical differences between the way Athena is worshipped in Athens and the way she's worshipped in Sparta, much less any place else. Now, when we talk about how the earliest inscriptions that we find naming Aphrodite by that name in Cyprus is late because they have other names for her, and that is how they (laughs) worship her. Worship of Aphrodite probably goes back extremely far in Cyprus. I don't know if we can say how far back, definitely back to the Bronze Age. I would say we unequivocally have evidence. Uh, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to say unequivocally. She's definitely worshipped as her own persona, as a goddess who is associated with the island, with sexuality and beauty, probably also with the local copper industry, as early as around late Cypriot too. So let's just give a random date here. Since 1400, we can say there's almost certainly an Aphrodite being worshipped as a dominant goddess on Cyprus. What name was she called? not Aphrodite, to the best we can tell, uh, they had their own language. We cannot read the Bronze Age language of Cyprus. I'm going to say yet here because I'm feeling really optimistic, but it was written in an orthography known as Mm Cypro-Minoan. So they have writing. We can't read the Minoan either, so yay us. Mm -hmm. The point is there's a writing system. We can't read it. We don't know what language or even what language family they were using. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're in a Semitic speaking orbit, but they're also just south of the Hittites. So who knows what language they were speaking. So we can't get at their language. When they start using Greek, so they start writing in a new orthography called Syllabo-Cypriot, and we can tell that they are now speaking a kind of Cypriot dialect of Greek, if you will. We start getting names for their deities. And again, it's not Aphrodite, because whom are they worshipping at Paphos? They're worshipping the queen, Wanasa, a nice Mycenaean Greek word there. As far as I'm concerned, and I'd say generally speaking, the understanding is that the goddess whom the Paphians and whom the Cypriots in general are worshipping by the title Wanasa or Paphia is the exact same goddess understood by the Greeks as Aphrodite. It is a huge debate as to what Aphrodite means, what language it comes from, where it originated. We still do not know. And a big part of the problem is that, again, we don't know that Cypriot language. And because the goddess came from Cyprus to Greece by way of Crete, we also don't know those indigenous languages on Crete either. So we got two entire language families, at least, uh, that we don't know that contributed to the formation of the name Aphrodite. So by the time she's recognized in Greece, she has this name. They don't seem to have used that name or necessarily any name for a goddess in Cyprus. You get titles. The Lady of Paphos, Paphia, you get Queen, you get Our Lady of Golgos, Golgia. So we get titles. So if you want to use modern comparandum, you can say that all over the world, you have the cult of Our Lady of, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady Mm -hmm. of Guadalupe. And people worshipping Our Lady of Guadalupe would be really surprised when someone says, oh, hey, you're worshipping Mary? And they might say, who's Mary? Oh, you mean Our Lady of, do you see what I mean? Right, right, yeah. So a similar persona, but frequently using different names and titles. Was Kypris one of them at the time, or Kypria? 
uh, yes, both in Cyprus itself, that was one of the overarching names, especially, I believe, as Cyprus started to view itself as a little bit more of a united entity. And you also see that name, as we already mentioned, as an epithet of Aphrodite in Greece as well. How I know you said it's it's notoriously difficult to, to, to trace her worship in the archaeological record, mm-hmm. but um, I noticed that you do talk a lot about these these uh, bird faced figurines in the Bronze Age, um, yes. and you mentioned that they're very common to Syrian figures. Uh, so, what are some of those characteristics? Uh, how are they tied to to that to the goddess? Let's say, and why a bird? The way they got the name bird-faced figurines is uh, they have big noses. Uh, Their noses are very beak-like. And so somewhere along the way, someone started calling them bird-faced figurines with their nice prominent schnozzes, in part to distinguish them from a slightly later but very similar style called normal face figurines. So it's a technical term, and I don't know if it's a good one to be using, but it's (laughs) what we got now, so that's what we're using. But basically, uh, there is a very long tradition in the ancient Near East of a kind of iconography that can simply be called the nude female. And as you probably already guessed, she's generally nude, (laughs) hence the name. A couple of other uh, defining characteristics is she's usually en face. So she's uh, presented frontally, looking forward towards you. Uh, Now that can change a little bit in glyptic iconography. She might be turned to the side, especially if you're getting Egyptian influence or if it's simply easier to portray her that way. But she's very frequently en face. Uh, She shows up in terracotta. She shows up in metal. She shows up uh, in ivory, in glass, in just about any medium you can imagine imagine. She uh, originally appeared in Mesopotamia, specifically in the city of Kish, which is kind of north central Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq. And the iconography spread out. It went up into Anatolia, modern day Turkey. It went into the Levant, into Syria. It went down into Egypt. It mingled and merged with other forms of iconography and just basically spread everywhere. And Depending on where the image is and what tradition it comes out of, it can have different meanings. But in Mesopotamia, originally, it seems to be associated with the cult of Ishtar, at least to the best I personally understand the origin of this image. And as the image spread out, it was adopted for different local goddesses. Uh, conveying different meanings. So if you go up into Syria, for example, and you look at their glyptic iconography, so that's the pictures they would put on cylinder seals, which is what they would use to sign their names on mud tablets. You'd roll this uh, cylinder shape and the image on the seal would come across in the mud. And that's your way of saying, yep, my name is George and I approve this tablet. So in Syria, for example, you might see uh, a nude female, but she'll be on top of a bull surrounded by a winged rainbow. And that bull is pulling a chariot that is being uh, ridden by a storm god. And in this case, well, it's not Ishtar, it's more likely Shala. This is the wife of the storm god, and she is a goddess of rain. And if you will, the rainbow there. So she gets adapted for displaying different aspects of divinity, the divine goddesses. In the late Bronze Age, Cyprus gets, I'm not going to say walloped, it it receives a lot of influence from the Levant. Uh, They start having uh, greater trade relations, and you know how it is, you start uh, doing more commerce with Japan. And the next thing you know, you're watching anime and your kids are wearing t-shirts that have Japanese writing on them and Mm -hmm. all that fun kind of stuff. Well, same thing is happening here. You're having a lot of, uh, cultural cross fertilization. And one of the elements of Levantine culture that enters Cyprus during the late bronze age, and even earlier during the middle bronze age, but definitely in the late bronze age is this iconography. So, the Cypriots already have a long tradition of female iconography in terracotta. So they have female figurines in clay. 
And as they get more and more influenced by the Levant, they start adapting their images more and more to the way they're made in the Levant until the next thing you know, you have these bird face figurines who are very, very similar to what we see, especially in Syria. So it is a nude female. She is facing towards you. So full frontal, naked. Her arms can be either uh, just under her breast, of you know, on her upper abdomen, or they can be out to the sides a little bit. She has a very clearly rendered pubic triangle. She has clearly rendered breasts. She has kind of a wild, spirally hairstyle and earrings and jewelry. The main difference with the examples that we see in Cyprus is that they have huge hips. So they have huge pubic triangles. It's like saying, yes, I'm sexual. There is no subtlety whatsoever and a fairly prominent breast as well. Another major difference, and this is important, between the nude females that you see in the Levant and then the way the, the Cypriots adapt them is remember that long tradition of terracotta female figurines I was just telling you about? Right. And they go yeah. all the way back to the early Bronze Age. And one consistent feature is that they very frequently are shown holding children. They're holding babies, very literally babies and cradle boards or just babies always to the left breast in the arm. Now, you never see that in nude female iconography in uh, the Near East, a little bit in Egypt, but not in the Levant, not in Mesopotamia. But this tradition is so strong in Cyprus that when the Cypriots adopt and adapt this nude female iconography, when they make the bird-faced figurines, they occasionally show her holding a baby. So whatever this image is, it is still in line with the Cypriot tradition, even if they're changing the expression of it more closely to resemble the Levantine prototypes. Did that make sense? Yeah. So just like Aphrodite sort of developed on the island with Mycenaean Greeks, and that was sort of exported westwards, Yes. Aphrodite likewise developed from east of Cyprus, from the Levant, and, and, and through commerce and trade and influence developed also in Cyprus or, or through these trade routes, if I'm, if I'm reading you right. Right. So just to put it chronologically, let's say very early in the late Bronze Age, you have this uh, commerce and trade between Cyprus and the Levant. And one of the things that happens is we bring in this new style of female figurine with the, the breasts and the big nose and the earrings and the, the giant pubic triangle. And we start making our own local female figurines look more like that. Sometimes she's holding that baby that we've come to associate with her. Uh, later on, we also start having more trade with the Mycenaeans. So after a couple hundred years, we're looking a bit more west than east. And they give us a new style of naked female figurine. And this one isn't incised. She's painted and she doesn't have a big nose. She has a small nose and she has very dainty little ears. And she does not have those huge hips anymore. They get smaller. But otherwise, it's more or less the same thing. A difference, though, by this point, man, they had no none of that baby holding in the Levant. They don't have any baby holding or very little baby holding in Mycenaean Greece either. So we finally stop portraying this female figurine with babies at all. So to use a technical term, uh, a korotrophos is an adult holding a baby or a child. So up to this point, the Cypriot figurine was korotrophic. By the time we get the the Aegean influence, she stops holding babies. So we stop associating her with motherhood, if you want to think of it that way. And at this point, because we're looking farther west, we're having this trade, especially after the fall of the Bronze Age. So after 1200, let's say, after 1150, at some point, this goddess on Cyprus makes her way west. And when we get light again, when we start getting writing again, Aphrodite is there, known as that Cypriot one, Kypris, Kypria. Hmm. Can, can I ask you, um, before we move on, um, these these uh, figures, these um, bird-faced figures, what were they for? Like, what was it? Was it a public ritual? Was it for personal use? Do we have any idea about that? It's almost certainly for personal use. Uh, they do not show up large scale. 
uh, in any medium. They are occasionally found in sanctuaries, but they're more likely found in domestic or funerary context. So the technical terminology would be is that they seem to be used for personal piety of some sort. So more of the household religion. When we go to the actual sanctuaries, we will occasionally see large-scale bronze sculptures of male deities uh, being up to like a meter tall, potentially, and sometimes with a tenon at the body, uh, the bottom, so that you know that it was made to be set upright somewhere. We see no female equivalent. When we get the nude female in bronze, she tends to be small, something like maybe, you know, half a foot or something like that, maybe 10 inches, usually, actually smaller. Actually, no, sorry, 10 centimeters, so quite a bit smaller. What we find instead at the major sanctuaries that have been excavated in Cyprus, places like Paphos, places like Kidian, places like Enkemi, are frequently a male deity as represented by some sort of largest cult statue, if you will, and a betel, so a rock that is playing the role of the goddess, if you will. These figurines seem to be personal use. So this is what you might have at home as a symbol of divinity or religion or, okay, I'm, I'm baking bread for the first time and please let it turn out all right. And I have a little figurine to pray to and say, please let the bread rise. All right. Uh, and we're going to get to more formal worship of, of this goddess. But I want to circle back to the different names because we you talked about the epithets, you talked about the Paphian, Wanasa. Does this suggest one goddess with different epithets or potentially different goddesses that would eventually sort of uh, merge into one? Personally, I think we started off with different female deities who over time coalesced or syncretized into one overarching goddess. And part of the reason I think this is that you have different epithets working uh, simultaneously at different places. So there is simultaneously worship of Wanasa and Golgia. So again, to use a, a modern uh, Catholic parallel, you simultaneously have potentially Our Lady of Lourdes and Our Lady of Fatima. Because remember, you're dealing with localized populations. So the people at Golgoy have their goddess and the people at Paphos have their goddess. And eventually what happens is you have people going from Paphos to Golgoy and people going from Golgoy to Paphos and saying, you worship her? Oh, hey, yeah, we sure worship this. You know, Hey, I wonder if it's the same goddess. Uh, as people start to understand each other better and you have broader senses of group identity such that I'm no longer just a Paphian, I'm a Cypriot. Uh, we start to understand our local, the head of our pantheon is X goddess, and we all start to realize that maybe X is the same being. But it's hard to say because yeah. we can't do the reading. Yeah. That is my personal take on it, especially the way uh, religions do tend to coalesce. You see similar developments in Greece. Right. And I, I just, I, I think you're, I mean, that sounds logical to me because isn't that typical of the ancient world? The identification of a foreign God with a local God, like, oh, you, you know, that's, um, I don't know, that's, that's Aries. Oh yeah. We call him Mars. Exactly. It's called syncretism. Yeah. Um, and it's, it happens on all different levels in all different ways. Uh, but a, a major place that you see that kind of thing happening is in Mesopotamia, where the goddess Ishtar winds up absorbing a whole bunch of different local goddesses. But then she also kind of gets their name. So that there used to be these two rather distinct goddesses. Uh, there was Ishtar on the one hand and Ishhara on the other. Uh, yet by the time we're reading the Akkadian version of Gilgamesh, it almost seems to be that, oh, well, Ishhari is what we call Ishtar when she's uh, more romantic. And, oh, there was this other uh, goddess of love and sexuality named Nanaya, who used to be an independent goddess, but she gets sucked up by Ishtar too, so that we start thinking of her as just a, another version of Ishtar. We can see it happening very clearly because we have so much written documentation for so long in Mesopotamia. But that seems to be a trend that you find more or less generally throughout the ancient world. Localized people who come into larger and larger political units and have to figure out how to get their individual pantheons to merge and mesh into one more harmonious family. We talked at the start that you know Cyprus 
the the public relations office in Cyprus has done a fantastic <laughs> job associating the, the island with love and romance. <laughs> and what would Aphrodite have been worshipped as? And how would it change? Uh, or would it change? Would ancients also have seen her as a, a goddess of eroticism in addition to fertility or... She's not a fertility goddess. Got it. If you want fertility, you go to Demeter. Uh, you potentially go to Artemis. You It depends on the kind of fertility you're looking for. Uh, if you want to survive childbirth, you pray to Artemis. If you want your crops to grow, you pray to Demeter. If you want to get laid, you pray to Aphrodite. So what is Aphrodite? Uh, how would they have understood her? Again, uh, when we started talking, I was saying that in modern times, we tend to limit the Greek deities a lot more than the way they would have been understood in antiquity. We, we tend to say that X is God or goddess of Y, and we keep it very simple. So all of the ancient deities are way more complex than we ever give them credit for, and Aphrodite is included in that. Now, let's say first and foremost, she is a goddess of sex. Uh, and that is a dominant characteristic. This is the way she is presented in her Homeric hymn. This is the kind of function she fulfills in Homer. So that is going to be your number one slot. How do we understand Aphrodite? She is a goddess of sex. If you want to attack, beauty is going to come second, maybe even first, maybe even together with. She is definitely a most beautiful goddess. So those are the number uh, one and two things, if you will. Then you get beyond that, and she has a number of other important associations. So she is a queen, at least in Cyprus, definitely in Paphos. So in this one limited part of the Greek-speaking world, she is a queen deity. So she's the queen, not Hera. But that's in Paphos per se. You're not necessarily going to see that in Greece itself. But when you get into the Hellenistic age and you start looking at the cults of Greek deities in Eastern locations, places like Scythia or Syria, uh, she frequently is paired together with Zeus as a queen goddess because ancient religion was complicated. Mm -hmm. She is a goddess who protects you when you're sailing at sea. She is associated with seafaring. So the deity whom you pray to, if you're about to go on a sea voyage and you don't want to get killed in a shipwreck, is Aphrodite. You might also pray to Poseidon. Next to that little figurine of Poseidon you're praying to, you are also praying to your figurine of Aphrodite, and you're offering them both gifts if they get you to your destination safely. So she's a goddess of seafaring. In... Athens, she is understood as the goddess who promotes democratic harmony amongst the populace. She makes people get along so that democratic processes can function smoothly. So you can almost say that as Aphrodite Pandemos, Aphrodite of all the people, she is the a goddess of democratic harmony. I don't think they'd put it that way. It might even sound weird to put it that way now, but it's not a bad way of understanding it. And frequently contrasted with her epithet of Pandemos is Aphrodite Urania, heavenly Aphrodite, so she's associated with the sky. And probably this comes or creates, we don't know the direction, this association in Homer that she's the daughter of Zeus, the sky god. You mentioned... Um... Just a little bit earlier, you mentioned Beatles, which I'm vaguely familiar with what they are, especially in old Paphos. So can you tell us what they were uh, and how they were used? Because if I'm not mistaken, they're very peculiar representations of the goddess. Do we know why they were represented in that way? I don't think we know why simply because we don't necessarily have the writings for it. They are not that rare. Believe it or not, you see it in the Levant, you see it on Cyprus, and you also see it in Mycenaean Greece and Crete. So you see examples of Betel or rock or stone worship in these three connected but independent cultures. And from and we don't necessarily know which side gave the tradition of Betel worship 
to the Cypriot. So they could have gotten it from the Levant. We see uh, a similar cult in uh, a city called Imar uh, in Syria, on the Levant, uh, in the Levant. Uh, but we also have a strong tradition of Betel worship, apparently from Minoan Crete. We see pictures of it in their glyptic iconography. So it could have come from either side. Uh, they could have understood it in either way. But the idea seems to be that somehow the deity is present in an object, either that the object was sent by a deity to be a representation of self. And we have a long tradition of that, even in historical Greece, uh, the concept of the Xoanon, if you will. Um, but the deity is not presented in anthropomorphic form. It is literally just a force of nature, understood to embody the deity one way or another. And we have in the Archaeological Museum of Paphos, we have mm -hmm. the Betel that was worshipped in ancient Paphos from two, two and a half, perhaps even 3,000 years ago. I don't know how, how old that, that rock has been dated. And so this was a representation of the goddess and it emanated, it emanated. Divine presence. Divine Bet presence. Okay. Yeah. Betel itself comes from uh, the Semitic languages. It means it's the equivalent of Bethel. It means house of the God. So once again, somehow this rock embodies the divine presence. As early as Homer, the mm -hmm. Greeks saw her as quote unquote oriental. In other words, coming from the East. Yes. Uh, now you also mentioned this idea of syncretism before. Yes. And uh, one goddess that we didn't mention just yet is the, the Phoenician goddess Astarte or Ashtarte. Who is Astarte and how was she introduced to the island and, and who was she principally worshipped by? Uh, she is principally worshipped by a group of individuals whom the Greeks called Phoenicians. So conveniently, we just call them Phoenicians now. And these are residents of the central Levant in the Iron Age. So again, we're, we're dealing with long time spans here. So first off, who is Ashtart? I'm used to calling her Ashtart, so I'm just going to call her Ashtart here. Uh, Ashtart kind of emerged, is an evolved, emerged form of the goddess Ishtar we were talking about earlier. So in Mesopotamia, you have a goddess of uh, intense sexuality and eroticism and also intense warfare, and her name is Ishtar. And she's totally cool, and I definitely recommend studying her if you can. And as her cult spread farther to the West, she was adapted to uh, more localized perceptions of divinity and the needs of the worshippers, because gods are always tweaked to the needs of worshippers. And she came to be known as a kind of separate deity, Ashtart. She is worshipped in the pantheons of the Levant, so up in Syria, in Canaan, uh, in the city-state of Ugarit, which gives us a lot of our information about Canaanite mythology and religion, because otherwise we don't have much writings from those people, and you can never trust the Bible on that sort of thing. But she's even occasionally mentioned, uh, barely, but a little bit, in the Hebrew Bible as well. But when we get to the Iron Age, she is the dominant goddess of the Phoenician populations who inhabit what is now Lebanon. So the city-states of places like Byblos and Tyre and Sidon. So she is their queen deity. Now, in the the Dark Age, what could be called the Dark Age, so starting mainly in the 9th century BCE, you see the Phoenicians realized that they were running out of space. <laughs> uh, they're living on the Levant. You got a, a Mediterranean Sea on one side. You got folks like the Assyrians on the other side. So you're feeling really limited. So the Phoenicians were a great sea power. They had always been traders. They had been trading with Egypt since I think the fourth millennium, really long. And they just decide that they are going to move out into the greater Mediterranean world. So they start colonizing. One of the first places they colonize is Cyprus. So Cyprus had been colonized by the Mycenaeans, or if you will, they took in Mycenaean refugees. You can look at it either way. Uh, 12th century BCE, and then in the 9th century BCE, you have these Phoenicians moving over. So they settled, they set themselves up in the city-state of Kidion. Uh, 
and the chief goddess they're going to be worshiping in this new place of theirs is their good old home queen goddess Ashtart. So the cult of Ashtart gets introduced onto Cyprus by the Phoenicians who worship her there. So at this point, let's say by about you know, 800, uh, 8th century BCE, you have a Cyprus that is kind of Phoenician on the eastern side and kind of Greek on the western side. And there are certain points in the south that's still Idios, uh, Cypriot, so still your indigenous population. And the folks over in Kidion are worshiping Ashtart, who, remember, derives from Ishtar, who is a kind of martial and erotic goddess. So you have this powerful queen goddess who uh, is associated at least with beauty. She's not as erotic by the time she's Ashtart, but is still a beautiful deity. You go over to someplace like Paphos, where they are worshiping their own queen goddess, and you go down into the Idiocypriot or the indigenous Cypriot places, and they're probably worshiping goddesses called Wanasa and Paphia themselves. And eventually they all start thinking, oh, well, I guess the, uh, the, uh, the Greek name for Ashtart must be Wanasa. And the folks over in Paphos are saying, oh yeah, they worship the same goddess we do. They just happen to call her Ashtart. And the next thing you know, there is this goddess who is recognized as being a queen who seems to have Eastern associations or certain recognizable iconography that potentially all of these people realize, oh, it's just the same goddess. We just happen to have different names for her. Right. There it is again. <laughs> that that, that mm -hmm. secretism. That so when, when can we say confidently that the indigenous goddesses whether indigenous or, or otherwise, were eventually conflated with Aphrodite and we um, would lose those epithets. Um, is that something that happens in the Ptolemaic age uh, or perhaps well, even earlier? The earliest epigraphic, epigraphic evidence that we have is fourth century. So you're looking at the end of the classical, the beginning of the Hellenistic period. But this is simply the written evidence that we have found. You probably have people in Cyprus long before this who realized that, oh yeah, Wanasa, oh yeah, the Greeks call her Aphrodite, whatever, but we happen to call her Wanasa, or we call her Paphia, or we call her Queen. So language is a really good way not to communicate sometimes. <laughs> It's ironic. <laughs> um, whether or not the people in Cyprus understand this goddess the same way, because bear in mind that when the Cypriot uh, divinity makes her way to makes her way west during the Dark Age, she's going to go through processes of uh, syncretism and assimilation in Greece that she does not necessarily go through in Cyprus. And I think we always have to bear in mind that that process is happening. We forget that it is. So just to give you a for example here, if you don't mind, all the yeah. archaeological evidence suggests that the cult of the Paphian, Cypria, however you want to call her, before we start calling her Aphrodite, her cult goes from Cyprus. It first goes over to Crete. And then from Crete, it goes into uh, the Greek mainland, south to north. Now, Greek at this point, uh, Crete at this point is a, a Doric speaking territory. So they are speaking a very particular dialect of, of ancient Greek. And another place, the most famous place for speaking that dialect is Sparta. So there are certain close correspondences that we see, not just in the language, but even in the society and the laws of Crete and Sparta. All right. So let's say that this cult of the Paphian goes from Paphos, from Cyprus. It goes over into Crete. She starts becoming the goddess who will, the goddess who will eventually be known as Aphrodite. And her worship is established there. It might be somewhat influenced by local Phoenicians who are saying, oh yeah, that's our Astarte. You know, she's blah, 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 whatever. And then this goddess and her cult and her worship move up into, say, Sparta. Now, Sparta is very interesting in this respect because what happens is this Aphrodite displaces a couple of other goddesses who are already worshipped in Cyprus. One of them is Helen of Sparta. So we, are, we see, even as late as Herodotus, that the Spartans worship Helen, and she is specifically a goddess of beauty. Now, when we look at Homer, she's not a goddess. She's a daughter of Zeus, absolutely, but she's mortal, and she's the pawn of Aphrodite. 
So what seems to have happened is that this new, powerful, Cypriot-based goddess is now being worshipped in Crete, and then her cult is moving up into the Peloponnese. Her cult is adopted in Sparta, where the understanding of this new goddess is partially melded with a local goddess of beauty and love known as Helen. Helen gets demoted to merely uh, heroic status. So she's not a goddess anymore. She's a heroine. And the new cult is associated on this new goddess uh, brought from Crete, brought from Cyprus, but now also mixed up with ideas that we had about a goddess, a former, yeah, former goddess known as Helen. We also have some evidence from Pausanias that Aphrodite also kind of butted into the territory of Hera because Hera is your goddess of marriage. So this is a goddess who's associated ideally with love and the formation of new bonds. And somehow by the time of Pausanias, we have this temple where Aphrodite and Hera are worshipped together. So when she comes into Greece, she it's not that there's a total vacuum. Aphrodite starts picking up characteristics and attributes of goddesses who were there before her and whom she's kind of displacing. So the Greek Aphrodite we see might have different attributes uh, in any individual Greek city-state, but definitely there than what we're necessarily going to find in Paphos. And this is why someone who lives in Paphos might say, huh, Arwanasa doesn't have that characteristic or doesn't act that way. So I'm going to think of her more according to as our queen, as opposed to, well, your goddess of seafaring or something like that. And, and in Sparta, there's even evidence that their goddess had militaristic qualities as well. Yeah, yeah. but it's Sparta. Everything has militaristic okay. <laughs> qualities. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh would have militaristic <laughs> qualities in Sparta. Right. Um, there's there is debate as to whether or not Aphrodite had a martial component. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this stems from the fact that she's strongly syncretized and associated with Astarte slash Ashtart. Ashtart herself seems to be a very martial goddess. And if we take all of it back to Ishtar, Ishtar was definitively a martial goddess. Um, as far as I am concerned, she Aphrodite lost that martial quality uh probably on Cyprus and almost certainly by the time she was brought into Greece. When we see her in Homer, she is uh, a, a hot mess in battle. She can't do anything. She yeah. is not a martial goddess at all. Yeah. And the other gods even laugh at her when she tries. The, the problem is that we tend to see Greece through a Roman lens and we forget that hundreds of years and a whole different religion and culture and everything else separate Greece from Rome. Now, in the first century CE Rome, you start seeing this tradition of an armed Aphrodite, especially amongst the Julians. And it goes back a little bit to Sulla, but it's really developed by Augustus Caesar. And it's a naked Aphrodite who is kind of playing with weapons and, oh, she has Mars's shield, but she's using it like a mirror to check her hair and that sort of thing. But what yeah. we read in the text is that, oh, there's this statue of armed Aphrodite. Oh, there's the statue of Aphrodite Hoplismene, armed Aphrodite. And we don't always pay attention to the fact that with the possible exception of Sparta, where remember even Winnie the Pooh is martial, all of these armed Aphrodites are Roman in date. So what you're actually looking at is Venus as reconceptualized very politically by very specific Romans with a particular agenda. And even when she has these weapons, it doesn't mean she can use them. She is adorned with them, but not necessarily martial. So I personally do not think that Greek Aphrodite is a martial entity. I think there are changes that occur later under Roman influence, but that is a topic that is still in debate. When would you say the modern sort of perception of Aphrodite, you know, we started this, this interview with asking the question, who is Aphrodite in, in popular imagination? Um, when would you say this shift occurred where we don't see Aphrodite strictly as, a, you know, a goddess of sexuality 
when when does that shift actually start happening? Uh, as with uh, anything, it takes place it's in stages. One of the first great events that's going to contribute to this is, of course, the rise of Christianity. Because when Christianity becomes official, and then it becomes the dominant religion, and then it turns on and starts antagonizing the old pagan religions, you're going to get very different understandings of what the gods were. So for the ancient Greeks, Aphrodite is powerful and she's sexual and you definitely want her on your side or things are going to be bad, but she's also beneficial. Um, I mean, she provides sex. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, she provides social harmony. That is a wonderful thing. You pray to her to make your ugly daughter beautiful and it works. Yay. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, when you get to the rise of Christianity, they really start turning on the pagan religions and they demonize them as much as possible. So you will have people who, for example, originally went through the Eleusinian mysteries sacred to Demeter and Persephone when they thought that Demeter and Persephone were great goddesses who created heaven and a beneficial afterlife for mortals. But now I've, you know, I've converted to Christianity and I've given up all my pagan ways. And now I could say, ah, it's just stupid. And all the stuff they did was dumb and blah, blah, blah. So what happens with Aphrodite is that she goes from being a goddess of sexuality to being the goddess of whores. And I'm using the term whore there to be as kind of insulting with it as possible. So we don't even want to see a positive aspect of sexuality with her. She is the most degraded, debased form of sexuality we can conceive of. Already with early Christianity, you are seeing a debasing of the goddess and making her bad. Um, so that is a part of it. Uh, a secondary thing that you see, and I'm not entirely certain when exactly this started, but you're, you're definitely seeing it uh, from around 1800 onwards. There is the rise of the cult of fertility, uh, where anything that we would think of as being sexual or female suddenly gets dumped into this one overarching category of fertility. That's why earlier when you were saying Aphrodite is a fertility goddess, and I said, no, she's not, because this is a big thing for me. We have made way too much of fertility. So, oh, it's a naked female figurine, it's fertility. Oh, she deals with sex, it's fertility. Oh, she's female, it's fertility. Uh, and we dump anything that might make us feel uncomfortable, uh, involving sexuality or just the female sex into this overarching category that the entire purpose of the female sex is to make babies. It can right. be very limiting. I, yeah. I rather resent it. But you can actually watch the development of this ideology, at least from around 1800 with some of the classical poets who were hymning, ah, Mother Earth, the Great Green, ah, nature. Then you wind up with some Victorian period scholars, especially James G. Fraser and his work, The Golden Bough. I just came from a conference on him where we were talking a lot about this, where what would be the eroticism of Aphrodite is channeled into this notion of, oh yes, she's just a fertility goddess. Um, so that's also limiting. So that by the time you get to Kevin Sorbo, and even more so with Xena, warrior princess, because I think that was a much better series, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. Yeah. You are getting a goddess who is, okay, merely by being pagan. Okay, well, obviously that's not a real goddess. That was just a silly myth that they told before they got quote unquote real religion. So you're already getting knocked down literally off of the pedestal there. And you already have these bad associations because it's pagan and myth as opposed to quote-unquote, true religion, and you're female, and well, we all know that female must always be bad, and if you're female, it must be fertility, because you're there to make grass grow and to make babies, and especially uh, in this country, uh, in the 50s, post-World War II, when you have the driving home of the feminine mystique that to be a fulfilled female means to be a wife and mother you wind up with one image of femininity. 
And when you consider that Aphrodite is the poster child for femininity, she is an amazingly feminine goddess, any negative stereotype that you have about the female sex is being shoved onto her. And you wind up with, oh, definitely pretty, but kind of ditzy, not all that bright, giggling, really only concerned with appearance and who am I getting a date with? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because obviously there's, there's a lot of misconceptions around, um, around Aphrodite. I mean, case in point, I, I made the same comment myself. Um, it's normal. It's yeah, normal. Right. And you know what, something else that you did, that you, you've talked a lot about is this perception of how Aphrodite has been worshiped through sacred prostitution. Um, no, she and, wasn't. Yeah. And I feel like you have a lot, <laughs> I feel like you have a lot to say on that. Because again, like that is something that I, you know, I didn't put a lot of thought into it, but if someone had mentioned, uh, yeah, sacred prostitution, I'd say, okay, yeah, that, that was something that was done. But you're saying like that, that was not done. So what, can you tell us a little bit about what people thought that was all about and why that's not certainly the case? Sacred prostitution is a historiographic mistake. That is the easiest way to describe it. Basically what happened is 5th century, you have a historian guy named Herodotus. You've probably heard of him. I know you've heard of him because I just talked about him earlier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, anyway, but he wrote kind of an ethnography and a history of Greece and parts of uh, parts of the world close to Greece, um, and eventually started talking about uh, how Persia came and conquered just about everyone except Greece. So in book one, he's talking about Mesopotamia. And one of the things he talks about in book one, specifically section 199, is what he calls the most shameful custom among the Babylonians, where he claims that it is necessary once in every woman's life. Now, bear in mind that the Greeks use the same word for woman and wife. So you could also say it is necessary that once in the life of every wife, she has to go to the temple of the goddess Mulita. And Mulita is one of those epithets or syncretized names of the goddess Ishtar, who keeps coming up in conversation. So they have to go to the temple of Ishtar in Babylon, and they have to sit and wait there and until some foreigner comes demands her in the name of the goddess, gives her money, and then has sex with her. So total stranger, she's forced to have sex with this guy for money, and then the money is considered sacred to the goddess, Ishtar, Mulita, Aphrodite. Uh, Herodotus himself says the, the Babylonians call Aphrodite Mulita, so he understands this is a temple of Aphrodite. Now, he doesn't say how he came across this information. And one of the great things about Herodotus is he always tells you how he got his information that, oh, yeah, you know, the priests at Egypt, they told me this or, yes, I heard it from my tour guide. OK, I'm kind of making that up. But he's really good about giving you his sources. And with this thing, there's no sources whatsoever. And furthermore, it comes along across in this entire list of customs of the Babylonians that everyone knows did not take place. So at another point, he's saying, oh, yeah, they, they arranged marriage by auction. They had no bride auction. And oh, there's this absolutely wonderful passage where he says, when anyone gets sick, what they do is they take that person out of the house, put the person onto the sidewalk, and then they ask everyone going by, hey, uh, do you know how to treat this? And it's hilarious because the Assyriologists say none of this happened in ancient Mesopotamia. Was Herodotus on drugs or something? And now I, I don't think he was on drugs. He might have been. I don't know. I doubt it. He was definitely making up a lot of stuff here. We have no evidence that he himself ever actually went to Babylon, so he didn't see any of this. And as far as I'm concerned, that notion of every woman being forced to submit to the embrace of a foreigner was Herodotus's way of speaking poetically about the fact that Babylon was conquered by the Persians. Um, so that you're dominated, you are forced to accept um, foreign domination. That notion of being conquered is like being raped and vice versa. Uh, that's what we're seeing here. So he's using a very symbolic, poetic means of discourse to explain what's happening. Well, the problem is that not everyone understood that. So you have a couple of other authors who read this in Herodotus and they think, oh, um, 
okay, so this thing must have existed in Babylon. I've never heard about it myself, but well, Herodotus wrote it. So you have someone like Lucian in his uh, Syrian goddess uh, creates a very similar parallel. What he's doing, Lucian, is he's actually doing a pastiche. He's almost making fun of Herodotus by writing a Herodotian history of this particular goddess. So he's plucking all sorts of titillating, tantalizing things from Herodotus. And one of those is... Uh, a notion of sacred prostitution. Uh, Pausanias also seems to crib from Herodotus when he's writing his description of Babylon, even though it winds up being really different because he knows people who are in Babylon. And apparently all those people said, yeah, no, that doesn't happen. So he waters it down. So it's like, well, yeah, there, there's some temple somewhere where something kind of like this seems to happen, even though no one. Um, so it really gets muted down and no one's really certain what Herodotus is talking about. But it's such a cool idea that uh, later authors latch onto it and modern scholars really latch on to it. They love this idea. They accept that what Herodotus was saying was true. You have a whole bunch of Assyriologists who, while looking at all those other things like the, you know, your hospital is the sidewalk or bride auction, and they say, oh, that's ridiculous. We know for a fact the the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians never did that. And then they read about the sacred prostitution. It's like, yes, we love this idea. Every time we find a title of a priestess or a female cult functionary in any of our tablets, we're going to translate it as sacred prostitute. And the next thing you know, there are sacred prostitutes all over the place and everyone thinks it's a historical reality. And in reality, it's not. It never existed. And when you go back and check on all of the sources and evidence that we claim our sacred prostitutes. It turns out there's nothing there. I really do appreciate your time, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak about Aphrodite and Cyprus. I am a raving coprophile myself, and I mean that both in terms of the goddess and the island. And I'm just going to end by saying that we need to get together a people's revolt and we need to force Cypriot Airlines to make first class Aphrodite, not Apollo. Because she's <laughs> more important than he is. And I realize she's Pandemos, but... Yeah, yeah, no. I, I, I still think it should be Aphrodite up there. <laughs> great point, great point. Again, your new book is called Gender in the Ancient Near East. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye.